Christie's is one of the oldest auction houses for fine art. It sold works by Leonardo da Vinci and Pablo Picasso. Sold number 6022. It recently sold the work of a digital artist named Beeple for nearly $70 million. The new owner didn't receive a painting to hang on a wall, though. Instead, he got a non-fungible token, otherwise known as an NFT. It's basically a certificate saying he's the owner of an image just to Google search away for the rest of us. Confused? Welcome to the club. My head has been perpetually exploding in slow motion since I started dabbling in this world. The meteoric rise of NFTs. That's today on Brainstorm, the podcast about how tech is reshaping our world. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Brainstorm. I'm Michal Evram. And I'm Brian O'Keefe. Okay, so the voice you heard in the intro was our colleague, Robert Hackett. And I have to agree with him. My head's exploding a little bit, too. NFTs are wacky. So why are we talking about this today, Brian? Well, everybody's talking about it, so we have to. But um, I think, you know, when you see stories about, for instance, a meme of something called Neon Cat, that is selling for around $580,000. I, I want to understand here, what exactly is Neon Cat for those of us who don't know? Neon Cat is a meme that you should know that's been viewed hundreds of millions of times. It's an animated cat with a Pop-Tart body flying through space, and it leaves a rainbow trail behind it. Meanwhile, there's a Brooklyn-based film director who's selling recordings of his farts for around $85 a pop. And they're somehow attached to cryptocurrency and a blockchain and everyone's going crazy for it. We have to talk about it. We have to figure out what it's all about. Yeah, Brian, we're seeing a lot of interesting things that are being sold as NFTs. I mean, some of the other examples include like Jack Dorsey's first tweet, which apparently is going for $2.9 million. I know some other famous people have been trying to sell their tweets as well. There's a virtual house for 500000 There's digital marijuana. I have no idea what that is. I don't know why you would want it, not, you know, IRL, but some of this is over my head, definitely. I guess the upside of digital marijuana is you wouldn't flunk a drug test at the very least. But yeah, I mean, the NFT explosion is going in all directions. There's an electronic music artist who has made $17 million in a month issuing NFTs. The rock band Kings of Leon just released a new album as an NFT, and it's brought in $2 million or more, and I think $500,000 of that they donated to you know venue crews who've had a tough time over the past year when we haven't been able to have live music. So people are getting really creative about this really quickly. Yeah, so this is why we brought in our resident expert on blockchain and all things crypto, Robert Hackett, because this is a lot of what powers NFTs, right, is the blockchain. And we had so many questions for Robert, as we usually do. So we asked him to just dive right in and explain this whole world to us. Yeah, okay. So a non-fungible token, it's linked to cryptocurrency, but what you can think of it as is basically a certificate. It's like a digital certificate that says you are the owner of a certain thing, some kind of digital content. So basically anything that is data can be logged on a blockchain and its ownership be represented by an NFT. If you have a piece of art that is an NFT and 
the fungible, non-fungible part of it means you can't replace it with something else. It's a discrete object. So it's like a signed piece of artwork, right? But how do you display it? Is it a file? Like, how does it arrive? Or how do you possess it? Yeah, I mean, so it's a token. The thing about cryptocurrencies is that they are fungible, which means that, you know, one Ethereum equals another Ethereum, uh, just like one dollar bill equals another dollar bill. But a non-fungible token is like a movie theater ticket that's expired is not going to be the same price as a ticket to go see the next Super Bowl. Um, like these are two totally different things, even though they're both tickets. And it's still a token. So you would hold it in your Ethereum wallet, basically. So, Robert, remember a few years back, the whole Crypto Kitties mania like, was that a precursor to this? Was that fungible or non-fungible? It was totally fun, but it was non-fungible. And yeah, I'm glad you brought up CryptoKitties because that was sort of the first instance of NFTs taking off. And I remember covering that years ago and thought it was kind of silly. You could trade these digital cats kind of like Beanie Babies, except you could breed them and like maybe some would be more rare than others. You could make money if it was a rare looking kitty cat and then sell it for a profit. This is basically the second coming of CryptoKitties, except now it's taking off in all sorts of different assets. You can sell artwork as an NFT. You can sell farts as an NFT. I mean, the sky's the limit here, really. This is such a, it feels like such a, uh, you know, symptom of mania right now. Like, do you think there's staying power to this? Or does this all feel like a fad to you that, it, that we'll look back on like CryptoKitties, you know, in a couple of years? There's an element to this that is very faddish. I mean, when there's money to be made, you're going to have tons of people pouring in and just trying to make a quick buck. But on the other hand, I actually am of the opinion that this has long-term potential. And it's possible that people who are buying interesting pieces of art right now will, you know, years later be looked at as the sort of like people who got in on the ground floor and have some really cool stuff from the early days where does one actually go to buy and sell NFTs? Are there different marketplaces that are, I mean, I guess there are some existing art sellers, but are there also new marketplaces being launched? There are. I just wrote about a marketplace called OpenSea that just raised uh, $23 million the other day. You have all different sorts of people investing in it too, like Mark Cuban, Ben Silberman, the founder of Pinterest, Belinda Johnson, the chief operating officer of Airbnb. I mean, you've got a whole cast of characters of, you know, tech heavyweights that are putting money behind this. I'm still stuck on how do I display or possess my NFT? Let's say, for instance, Alabama won the national championship in football, which they did again. And I wanted to have a clip of that or an image of that commemorating their championship, and I wanted to buy an NFT. How do I show the world that I have that? Well, if you were to buy an NFT of it, then your claim of ownership would be logged on the blockchain, and the blockchain is a public document that anybody can inspect. So your claim would be out there. Anybody who wants to take a look at the blockchain could see that Brian O'Keefe is the proud owner of that Crimson Tide moment. That just doesn't sound very exciting. I want something big on my wall. So somebody comes in and they're like, hey, roll tide. Look at that. You know, not like anybody that wants to can ascertain which blockchain my uh, celebratory property is registered on and check it out. You know what I mean? Like, it just doesn't feel very sexy. I mean, you could plaster it on your website and, you know, 
make us think about it. And uh, other people will probably screenshot it and put it on their website and say that they own it too. In a digital environment, you don't have scarcity. You can infinitely replicate bits of data. That's sort of the beauty of the internet. But what NFTs enable is it enables you to inject a level of scarcity into the system. Uh, I mean, you're never going to stop people from screenshotting pieces of art and sharing them around the internet, really. But what you can do is begin to create a system where you start having definitive claims of ownership and you start to actually be able to apply scarcity on the internet. Okay, Brian, let's admire some art together. I'm opening up a browser here. I'm going to click on the link to Christie's online auction here and look at this very pricey, very hyped up piece of work by Beeple. Are you looking at this, Brian? I am. I'm looking at it. It's uh, incredibly colorful and incredibly dense, right? It's kind of made up by like hundreds of little images. And if you zoom way in, you can see some of them. The range of styles here, there's like a portrait of a woman. There's uh, what looks like a skull with like little tiny legs on it. And there's something that looks like it could have been an outtake from the Pink Floyd album cover, Dark Side of the Moon. I thought the same thing. So would you pay 70 million for it, Brian? Well, I might pay $69.3 million for it if I were a billionaire, so someday. But I think that it's really fascinating to dive into this piece of art and try to figure out what the value is. This is really the standard that has kind of gotten everybody's attention, this sale. And to get more information about how this auction came to be at Christie's, why they picked it, um, and how it was conducted, I wanted to talk to Noah Davis, who's a specialist in post-war and contemporary art at Christie's, and he oversaw this auction of the first 5,000 days. We opened the bidding at $100, knowing that that was an extremely low starting point and expecting that that would cause a bit of a frenzy, but I did not imagine it would be as intense as it was. Within eight minutes, we went from $100 to more than a million dollars. More than 100 bids were placed. There were more than 20 bidders from seven different countries. Only three of those bidders were previously known to Christie's. So that wow. is completely unprecedented for us to have that kind of activity in a sale right out the gate, but also from that kind of audience. I doubt I will ever see anything like it again. Maybe you could just describe the the piece itself. The artist is is known as Beeple. He's actually a real person named uh, Mike Winkleman. How did you know this was this you know this very significant piece of art that you were going to choose to make your first NFT auction? How does it compare to more traditional artwork? So when I was initially introduced to Mike and the possibility of this collaboration, and we started having our our conversations around what the sale would look like, what and specifically, what are we selling? Mike 
threw a couple of ideas at us. And the first idea was simply a non-starter. He had chosen a self-portrait, himself as a a young boy doodling in his notebook, and behind him are floating all of the various horrifying avatars he's created over the years, including uh, naked Buzz Lightyear and Kim Jong-un with breasts. And we said, this is amazing, Mike, you're you're uh, insane. And uh, this is not aligned at all with Christie's brand. So can we think of something a little more accessible for our audience? Um, at which point he uh, presented us with the first 5,000 days of the Everyday's collage. Uh, it is this extremely personal, quixotic quest to create a whole digital artwork every single day of his life. And he hasn't missed a day in in more than 13 years. Every single one of these pixels in this collage can be expanded to become its own unique world, its own fantastical environment. Uh, And that to me was really fascinating. But really it was all about the totality and the epic monumental quality of the work. You know, I think that it's a lot easier for many people to wrap their minds around the idea of a painting. If I buy it, if I spend $69 million on it, I can take it and put it on my yacht and lock it away. And only I can see it or my friends. Whereas this is, you know, it's a little harder to explain to people or the outside world what someone's buying. It's a registration on a blockchain. How do you explain that to the auction world so that people understand what they're really getting when they buy this. Sure, yeah. Well, the easiest analogy is probably a certificate of authenticity. And the certificate of authenticity is a really interesting and highly fungible item, which has been a facet of the art world for a very long time. Another way to think of it is that the NFT is the soul of the artwork. You have the image that we illustrated on our website, for example, and anybody can screenshot that and take it and say, look, I've, I've got the 5,000 everydays, it's mine. But, but they actually don't. They only have the visual metaphor for the actual artwork, which is contained in the NFT. One thing I think is an interesting dynamic, and I'm curious to get your thoughts on it, is cryptocurrency has been embraced by people as this new you know, way of thinking about money that's outside of the typical authorities of you know, national currencies, countries deciding the value of things. It's an inherent value. And the more that cryptocurrency gets embraced by the mainstream, there are people that are purists that feel like that that's against the fundamental idea of cryptocurrency or blockchain-based systems. You know, the whole idea of blockchains and cryptocurrencies, we don't need organizations like Christie's to be the gatekeeper. So how do you think about that, especially as like you're inculcating yourself in this new world of digital art and the people who are sophisticated about it? Yeah, that, that's a really interesting and provocative question for me and definitely something I've been thinking a lot about. I think what we are offering right now is validation. Christie's has been around for hundreds of years And we are now stepping into the blockchain world and the NFT-based artwork world to basically anoint these creators, right? And we have a certain amount of clout in the blue chip art world and collecting world where you know when something is being offered for sale at Christie's, it's very important. So we can offer marketing 
and sort of the the ritual aspect of auction that all adds value in the space our function is more as a venue as a validator and not necessarily a middleman what do you think are going to be the ongoing effects in the art world and the role of digital art going forward do you think digital artists and an appreciation of digital art is going to grow rapidly now? And how is that going to affect sort of the traditional ecosystem that's been the status quo for so long? Well, first of all, nobody is coming after paintings, drawings, and sculptures. Traditional art does not have a target on its back right now. I do think that what we've done and what people's success means is that a lot of young artists and digital creators are going to feel empowered to make uh, even more amazing work. I think we are on the precipice of a, of a huge turning point. And do you think the universe of buyers for this kind of art is also a native and a younger demographic? Does this bring a younger demographic into art and into Christie's? Definitely, De absolutely, without a doubt. I mean, we had Gen Z bidders in this sale, which that just doesn't happen at Christie's, full stop. <laughs> but I also think by the same coin, there are going to be traditional art players who step into the NFT realm too. I can't tell you how many of our really important clients have been coming to the specialists they speak to at Christie's and asking, how can I get involved? It shows that, that this movement really does have serious legs. One of the interesting things here with NFTs, and I guess the advantages at least for the artists, is that if you're an artist and you sell your NFT art, you get paid just like any artist would. But then if the buyer decides to sell it again, you get a percentage of the resale value as well, right? Yeah. I mean, I think it sort of changes the script for how the art world works, that typically the artist could be toiling away in obscurity and then it gets discovered and you know, his or her art gets valued and then it gets the value could shoot up and the artist may like lose control of being able to get paid for that right down the road once his stuff is really really valuable and this means that like you don't lose that potential revenue stream now i mean there's a lot of people on the other hand they're saying that this is all kind of a big stunt and that it's all kind of tied into this bubble in cryptocurrency and this is all going to blow up and I guess th that could be true, but people were saying Bitcoin was a giant bubble a few years ago. It's certainly been very volatile, but we see this you know, incredible appreciation in Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies now. So I think we have to be open to the idea that it's really kind of the front edge of the wave and sort of a new way of thinking about art and valuing art. Yeah. And one of the ways that we may see this whole trend have some staying power as well is in the sports world. People have been collecting things for a long time, you know, baseball cards and that kind of stuff. And we're seeing NFTs crop up with sports collectibles big time. NBA Top Shot is a collaboration between the NBA and Dapper Labs, which is a cryptocurrency company. And it's actually the company that made CryptoKitties. Basically, Dapper Labs makes these digital collectibles using NBA footage. And this market is growing really fast. Five months after its launch, NBA Top Shot has about three quarters of a million registered users and $450 million in sales. And I spoke with Katie Tedman, who is their head of partnerships 
at Dapper Labs to hear more about this space and why they're seeing so much growth. MBA Top Shot is really a next generation collector experience. Um, and so humans basically collect things all the time, whether um, in sports it's ticket stubs or jerseys. If it's music, it might be vinyl. Maybe it's um, figurines, bobbleheads, Legos. It could be any number of things. And what we do is we bring that into a digital environment. So we use blockchain to create verifiable scarcity to the digital assets we're creating. And that just means that you can be sure that if you buy something that says it's one of 49, it's truly one of 49. That's kind of the value that blockchain brings into the equation. Um, and outside of that, it's really just a place to collect some of the best moments in in the NBA season and in NBA history. What kind of things are actually created and bought? So NBA Top Shot moments are kind of like a multimedia extravaganza of basketball. They have really high quality video that the NBA team helps us pick and package up um, of some of the best things that happen on the court during the season from some of the most dynamic players out there. And then all of the stats and information that come out of a game, whether it's the box score or advanced stats or player stats, something that sports fans really love, that kind of performance data. We smash that all together into a blockchain collectible, which is anchored in something that's called a smart contract. That's the thing that verifies the thing you got is the thing you got. And so all of those things are what makes up a top shot. It's kind of not just one thing. It's kind of everything that a sports fan would love crammed into one. So I have so many questions. I guess, first of all, like what are the moments that have sold for the most or been the most popular? Are they, is this the kind of players that you would expect to be popular that are popular in real life? Or is there like some other dynamic that happens in the digital collectible part of the world? I would say that every player is valuable to someone. And we'd like really to have full coverage of, you know, everyone who plays in the league at some point. On the high end of those sales, there have been a lot of plays and players that you would expect postseason uh, moments from players on the Lakers, uh, players on the Heat. In general, though, we see a lot of sales across the board and a lot of kind of collections made out of different price points of moments. And so even though we get a lot of press for some of those high value purchases, what we really see is that a lot of people come in and spend $8 or $9 and are able to access something that's really great. Are they not able to go on YouTube or, you know, any number of other sites, though, and see some of those moments for free? What's the difference here? Yeah, for sure. It's the same way that you can walk into the Louvre and see the Mona Lisa for free. Um, you don't actually own that thing. So the thing that you can't do with a YouTube clip is then go and sell it on a secondary market. And so that's one of the big pieces that marketplace and the marketplace transactions are a big part of the Top Shot product. Okay, this is probably a, a good moment to ask you just for a breakdown as much as you can of who's making money from this and how. What's the agreement between you and the NBA? And then tell me a little bit more about secondary markets and what happens there. Do you get a piece of that as well? Yeah, so the NBA and the NBPA, the Players Union, both get a revenue share on all of the sales that we make, whether that's primary sales, which are pack sales, or whether it's a transaction that happens in the marketplace. Uh, we take a 5% piece of any sale in the 
marketplace and that gets divvied between the parties as well. And so they really benefit from both the upfront sales and the secondary sales, although 95% of those marketplace transactions are really fan captured value. It's also, it's interesting, you know, just thinking about the implications here for creators and the type of opportunities that this unlocks kind of across the board, right? Not just sports specific, but I wonder if you could comment on the subject of sports in particular, what do the players think about this? And does this present some kind of an opportunity to profit off of their likeness, their skills, you know, everything that they offer their fans in a totally different way or in a more direct way down the road? We've seen dozens of players organically engage with the platform. We thought it would happen. It happened faster than we thought it would happen. And all of a sudden, our DMs were full of players who wanted to have their accounts verified, at which point we were like, we don't even have an account verification system. I guess we need to figure that out since it's so in demand. But I think they do see that. They see the opportunity to make some direct revenue off of their own likeness, which we fully support. There's a great opportunity to take control of your own rights and your own likeness and the likeness to your art, bring that to people who love it, but then also benefit in a secondary stream, which doesn't usually happen. If you buy a bobblehead and you want to sell it in its package, you go over to eBay, the NBA never sees any revenue for that. So in a digital format, it kind of takes some of that friction out and it also creates a secondary revenue stream, which can work for players, it can work for artists, it can work for any number of kind of creators who are involved in the space. It's really interesting, Michal, the world of sports collectibles is already a multi-billion dollar industry, you know, now of, of, of traditional sports collectibles, like signed baseballs and, you know, all this kind of memorabilia that people collect. It's natural that this technology would quickly find its way into this world, you know, certifying the veracity of these things and making it easy to transmit them. I kind of get that, but it also raises some questions about in this world of ones and zeros that we're increasingly in, you know, sort of putting a value on every single bit of our experience and putting it all on a blockchain somewhere. Yeah, but you know, when you really think about it, there's already been a value given to a lot of what we're experiencing and what we're contributing in the digital world. And our colleague Robert had some really interesting thoughts about this. You know, we've become so accustomed to uploading pictures and content and videos to services like Facebook and Pinterest and Twitter. And what people don't really understand is that when you part with content like that, you're basically giving ownership to these giant internet companies. And they have managed to make tons and tons of money off the backs of people like you and me. NFTs in the long term, people think that it's going to actually be able to create a power shift where creators, people who are actually doing this stuff and putting out content, that they're going to actually be the ones to reap the benefits of it, maybe make royalties. So it's this kind of structural shift that might be underway. And in that case, you know, what today might seem like selling rainbow Pop-Tart kitties flying through space seems ridiculous, but down the line, uh, it really is this fundamental rethinking of our economic relationship online. Robert really breaks it down really well, but I have kind of a more 
crass thought, Michal. Shouldn't we be turning this podcast into a new NFT and raising some quick cash for us and for Fortune? I mean, not just for us, but we have some value to offer the world. If we're seeing, you know, digitized farts selling online, I don't see why we wouldn't be able to sell this podcast, Brian. I think we're at least as good as farts. (laughs) I think that's a good place to end. That is it for today. If anyone's interested in buying an NFT of our podcast, please reach out to our producers and we'll be back next week with more talk on how tech is reshaping our world. The Brainstorm Podcast is a production of Fortune Media. Our show is produced by Wyatt Orm and edited by Nicole Vergala. Music is by Brian Campbell of Signal Sounds NYC. Executive producers are Mason Cohn and Megan Arnold.